Good afternoon. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge April Wood, and to my left is Judge Julie Flood. Today we're sitting in a special away session of the Court of Appeals at Elon Law School in Greensboro. We uh, schedule sessions at each of the law schools annually in order to give law students an opportunity to attend a session of the court. Um, of course, it's our pleasure to do so, and we thank you for hosting this session and for your hospitality. Assisting us today are the, the young lady who opened court for us. I'm so, I didn't catch your name. McKaylee, thank you. And uh, um, law clerk Tanner Ray, who will be closing court and, uh, and keeping time for us, and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon is Southland National Insurance versus Lindbergh um, on appeal from Wake County Superior Court. <clears throat> In this case, there's an appeal and a cross appeal. Um, accordingly, our usual timing is altered in this case. Uh, the parties have agreed to structure oral argument as follows. 15 minutes for defendant appellant's argument, 25 minutes for plaintiff cross appellant's appellee and cross appellant arguments, 15 minutes for defendant appellant's rebuttal and cross appellee arguments, and five minutes for plaintiff's um, cross appellant's rebuttal arguments. Um, Tanner, if you will, please give us a one minute warning. Are you ready to proceed, Tanner? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Is counsel ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. All right. You may proceed. <clears throat> is, it, is that going to be, are you, uh, can you increase if, the height of that? If we could, I would, Judge. <laughs> I have a feeling I'll be loud enough, but if at any time I'm not. I can try and do better. Thank you. It's the perils of uh, of being oversized. <laughs> well, good afternoon, and may it please the court, Matt Learberg for the defendant's appellants. In 2019, the plaintiffs here rushed into a multi-billion dollar deal with zero diligence and a hastily drawn memorandum outlining those deal terms. The memorandum had twin purposes. The first is protecting the plaintiff's policyholders. But the second is preserving the long-term equity value of the operating companies, they're, they're called SACs in this case, uh, for the defendants. The trial court correctly found that Article 3, which is the section that advances that second purpose of the MOU, was an unenforceable agreement to agree. But the problem is, instead of throwing the whole agreement out at that point, the trial court entered a judgment that enforced the parts that favor the plaintiffs while striking the parts that favored the defendants. That's unprecedented. There's just no precedent for rewriting a contract to preserve one party's interests and not the other. And for those reasons, the judgment should be reversed and the case remanded to the trial court to unwind this transaction and order restitution if appropriate. Now, as with all contract cases, we start with the party's intent. In this case, the MOU contains an express statement of the party's intent. It's right on record page 106. It's in recital N. And it sets forth these two provisions. The first is that the parties intend for the MOU to uh, protect the best interests of the policyholders. 
But then the second sentence says, in so doing, the parties also intend to increase the long-term equity value of the specified affiliated companies. That's these operating companies that defendants own. That first purpose, protecting the policyholders, that's advanced by Article 2, this global restructuring. And of course, under Article 2, uh, what happens is actually a, a remarkable remedy, right? Before the MOU is signed, what we have is a fairly typical creditor-debtor relationship. The insurance companies are the creditors, and these various specified affiliated companies are the debtors. And what defendants agreed to do under Article 2 is to hand over their life's work, 100, uh, 100 real operating companies in fields like healthcare and med tech, and to hand them over to the government to control and own for a period of time until the policyholder loans could be paid off. These companies are worth billions of dollars. And the idea was that the government would be able to kind of take the profits from these companies, pay off the loans, and when those loans are paid off, return control and ownership of these companies back to the defendants. But there's something kind of unusual there because under Article 2, the defendants are handing over control of the companies, the debtors, to their creditors. It's a very unusual situation, and the parties cite lots of case law on these issues on severance, but there really aren't any cases that address that kind of situation where a party takes the extreme step of agreeing to turn over the debtors to the control of the creditors. Was that in lieu of um, going into, I, I forgot the name of it, basically the, the insurance company equivalent of bankruptcy? Right. So at this time when the MOU is being discussed, there is this threat. Are the companies, the insurance company is going to go into rehabilitation? Um, are they going to go into liquidation? And ultimately, rehabilitation is selected. But even under rehabilitation or liquidation, those are remedies as to the insurance companies. That's an entirely different matter than taking these operating companies and handing them over to the government. That's a remedy that the defendants uh, agreed to that goes far beyond what rehabilitation could do. Well, it, was it in order to avoid that, though? It was in order to avoid liquidation of the insurance companies, which is different. Right. But why would a person or a company hand over the debtors to the creditor? I mean, why would you do that without some protection in return? That's why the second purpose is in the MOU. That's why that second sentence that says that the parties intend to preserve the long-term equity value of the companies. That's why that's in there. Uh, because otherwise, the government controls both sides of these loans. The government controls the creditors and the government controls the debtors. And the problem there, you can let your imagination run wild. The government could just renegotiate the loans. They could make the loans due tomorrow. They could try all kinds of manner of things that would ruin the long-term equity value of these companies just to kind of uh, bring into the present tense and get those payments as quick as possible. That's why there's this tension between these two pillars of the contract. And the fundamental problem here is that the court below, even though there was testimony at trial that the defendants wouldn't have entered into this agreement without Article 3, the court said, yes, Article 3 is unenforceable, but I'm still going to enforce Article 2. And that's error. Uh, that second purpose is advanced by Article 3, the global loan amendments. And let me just point out a couple things in Article 3 that are important. There's tax distributions. There's a, a promise by the government that um, that any money that's needed for tax distributions will come up from these operating companies, be distributed up kind of the LLC, LLC chain so that the taxpayer can actually pay 
his taxes. There's a right to cure a default. So if the loans, um, for whatever reason, if a payment isn't made, there's a, a, a right that's in Article 3 in Attachment B that says that the defendants have the right to try and cure that default. And most importantly, it gives the defendants a seat at the table for these renegotiations of the loans. And these loans are complicated. There's lots of different loans. There are intermediate entities that had kind of pooled the loans for the operating companies. And there are non-parties involved in some of these loans. There are seller notes where folks who had sold their company to the private equity firm still have some right uh, that is triggered upon a change of control. There are other insurance companies that aren't parties here. And all of those parties, the idea under Article 3 was they would all get together and negotiate terms that made sense and that contained these minimum promises that are in Article 3. But with Article 3 thrown out, the government gets all of the upside of being able to renegotiate that, those loans while defendants have none of the protections. There's no way the defendants would have entered into this contract without those protections. I mean, just by way of example, the trial transcript uh, pages 981 and 1024 to 25 are just a couple of examples of places where there's trial testimony saying the defendants would not have entered into these agreements without the protections of Article 3. It's uh, the analogy, I was trying to think of an analogy today, and the, the best I could think of is that it's like renting a car. And if you were to go and rent a car uh, without a promise that you brought it back in one piece, why would the rental car agency let you drive that car off the lot? They wouldn't. They are counting on you coming back with that car intact. That's why they do that inspection where you go around and find all the scratches. And that's what's happening here. The trial court said, you can take the car, you can take the keys to the car, the government can own these companies and run them for a few years to pay off the loans. And there's no protection that they have to be given back in any decent shape. That's what that preserving long-term equity value is. That's why that's in the contract. It's a protection so that when the ownership of the companies comes back, they're still viable. They're still worth something. And the life's work of defendants still has value. Did your client sign a severability clause? Yes, there's a severability clause in there. And North Carolina law is kind of funny on what a severability clause does. I mean, some of the cases on severability, there is no clause, but the courts nevertheless kind of parse and look at severing small provisions of a contract. Um, and in some of the cases, there is a severability clause. I think the best way to harmonize the case law is this. The purpose of the severability clause is it gives us a peek into what the parties intended. Did the parties intend that you could take some provision of the contract that might not be you know, top of mind, that might be kind of a detail in the contract? Should courts feel comfortable to cross that line out, cross out one sentence, cross out one clause? But not Article 3 but not half the contract. There's a fundamental difference there and no severability clause, no matter how written, could ever allow a court to just rewrite the party's agreements and say, this party gets all of the benefits and everything that was coming to you, you don't get. So Parties it, can't do that in a contract. Is it your contention then that Article 3 is not merely an agreement to agree? Oh no, it is an agreement to agree. I mean, well, that's the problem. If it's just an agreement to agree, how is that, how is that protective of your client? Had it been enforceable, I mean, had there been more, that there are, Article 3 kind of contains some definite things that were for sure going to be in there, like these tax protections. The problem with Article 3 is that in the end, it said this is a floor for the kinds of um, terms that are going to be in these global loan amendments. 
but ultimately the parties just agree to get together and figure out the rest of the terms above that floor. That's the problem. And that's why the court, I mean, the, the trial court was right to throw out Article 3. It, it was our contention that it was vague and unenforceable. And indeed it is. The trial court was right on that. So this, would all the Articles 1, 2, and 3 all be, should they all be thrown out then? Yes. I mean, the, the right remedy here, I mean, when you have a, a contract with a severability clause, like let's say, for example, there's, I just, by way of example, on record page 109, Article 2, Section 3.4, there's a, a sentence there that says the NHC board will promptly engage M3 partners as the chief restructuring officer. That's something the parties clearly agreed to. It's, uh, it's in Article 2. Let's say that company says no. They don't want the gig. Well, does that mean the whole contract gets thrown out? No, right? I mean, the severability clause is in there for a reason, and it says the parties agree that a court could line through that. But what do you do if, you know, Article 3, this pillar of the contract, is found unenforceable? Well, the law provides a remedy there. The remedy is all of the articles, the the whole document is found unenforceable and the parties are restored back to where they started. Now, in a case like this, that's not that easy, right? It's complicated. It takes a lot of analysis. And that's why instead of asking this court to enter, you know, a seven bullet point order, we think the right answer here is to vacate and remand for the trial court to look into exactly how in this kind of situation with these parties and this complicated setup, how exactly these parties can be restored to the status quo ante. Because That's really, I'm sorry. You're reading under Article 1 currently. Well, the Article 1 makes express reference to this separate contract, the interim loan amendments, uh, or the interim amendment to loan agreements. It's kind of called both things in different places. That document is attached to the MOU. And I, I can't quite make sense of the plaintiff's position as to how that fits in. I think in their reply brief of their cross appeal, they make the point that it's a, one transaction, but all separate enforceable contracts. And that's an example of kind of the messiness of this as to, well, is the ILA separately enforceable or is it properly considered part of the MOU? That's exactly why remand is appropriate. I mean, the trial court is in a position to analyze that. And there are other complicating factors. I mean, the, the ILA, that document is also subject to several lawsuits in state and federal court that are pending where the plaintiffs are affirming that document. The revolver as well has been subject to litigation. So trying to figure out how those various pieces of litigation fit in to this document and unwinding it, the trial court's in the best position to do that uh, in the first instance. And I want to use a little bit of my time to point out that the fraud determination that the, that the trial court put in place also cannot stand. The judgment um, is a little odd on this. It, it, finds, it finds fraud but it doesn't award any remedy for it. And one of the things that the parties today actually agree on is that that kind of judgment can't stand. I mean, a conditional judgment or advisory opinion where the judge says, if something happens in the future, then I would do this other thing. That's classically uh, improper. So the parties appear to agree that as is, that piece of the judgment should not stand. There are a couple reasons why. One is that if the contract's unenforceable as a whole, then it's per se unreasonable to rely on it. But more importantly, this is a deal where the defendants did zero due diligence. And this is actually, this is not a case where they're gonna stand up and say that's not true. The facts in the briefs, the facts in trial, everyone agrees there was no due diligence. The question is, what is, 
not the facts, but what is the legal import of a situation like this where there's this rush transaction and a party puts in warranties and representations into the contract and then does no diligence? What is the legal effect of that? And this court and the Supreme Court have looked and said summary judgment is appropriate for that. There's really no facts to try. Well, you say the, the party puts these terms into the agreement, but weren't these contracts negotiated by the parties? They were. The contracts were negotiated. I mean, there were, there were repeated revisions to the contracts, right? That's right. And these representations were added kind of at the penultimate or next to last stage, about a week, I think, before the contract was signed. Who ultimately drafted the contract? I think the, the different provisions were drafted by different folks. The representations were drafted by the plaintiffs. And I think my recollection is that the plaintiffs kind of had the pen on uh, most of the drafting of the contract. But the plaintiffs were on notice, as we point out in the briefs. They knew that there were these seller notes and third-party consents and change of control problems that would be triggered by the MOU. But they nevertheless wrote a representation saying otherwise, stuck it in the contract, and then never did any diligence on it. That sounds like a warranty, right? But didn't the defendants know as well? I mean, they negotiated those contracts, and uh, it seems like you. How would you? Uh, what's your contention as to whether or not the defendants knew the context, contents of those documents pertaining to the third-party financing? I see um, that my first fifteen minutes has expired. I'd like the opportunity to answer your yeah, question. Yeah, please, Senator. please go ahead. Um, and could you just rephrase it briefly? Well, okay. How do you respond to the argument that defendants knew the contents of the documents pertaining to the third-party financing? Um, and so if they execute these contracts, then they know that they're, they, you know, they know what they're signing. Right. And I think all the parties knew. I mean, everyone knew the contents. This, again, is a strange situation because unlike a typical arm's-length deal, the insurance companies were under uh, administrative supervision at the time these agreements were negotiated. They had full access to the books of the other side, which is a really unusual setup for an arm's length transaction. They had the documents just as well as we did. And so when the representations are in there and the parties say, you know, there's no third party problems, there's no problem with third party consents, everyone knows that's incorrect. And there's trial testimony that they figured they could just fix it later. They could work it out later. And we're only here arguing about it because they couldn't work it out later. Right, these third parties couldn't be brought to the they, table. They, they, about later, right? These third parties couldn't be brought to they, the table. They, they, who do you mean by they? All of the parties. All I mean, as plaintiffs and defendants. That's right. And during there's kind of a couple months period after the MOU was signed before it was to close, where the parties were trying to work through some of these issues and ultimately just weren't able to. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for my rebuttal. Thank you. Your Honor. Thank you. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. I'd like to start by just taking a step back and considering what the defendants are asking you to do here. The defendants told the trial court that Article 3 of the MOU was so preliminary and so vague that no one knew what it meant. Now they're coming here and saying, actually, it was the most important part of the agreement to them, and that without it, they never would have done the MOU at all. But the trial court, in accordance with their, with their request, did sever that part of the agreement, just like they asked for. And now the defendants come here and say, as a result, the entire contract doesn't exist. 
and they get to do whatever they want with these borrower entities with no concern for plaintiff's policyholders. Then they build on that. The next step is, because this contract isn't really a contract, the fraudulent statements that they made in that agreement to get $117 million of additional financial benefits don't count. And they get to keep that money too, money that came out of the pockets of those policyholders. The trial court found with a full view of the evidence that the defendants breached the contract and defrauded the plaintiffs. But the defendant's demand from this court is that the plaintiffs should get no remedy, none at all on either of those claims. Their arguments are legal gymnastics to try to avoid the very straightforward findings that the trial court made. You have to keep your promises and you can't tell lies to take someone else's money. With respect to the defendant's appeal, Judge Shirley's judgment should be affirmed for two reasons. First, severing Article Three of the MOU does not destroy that agreement's purpose, which was to protect the policyholders. And second, the trial court's factual finding that the plaintiffs reasonably relied on the defendant's false statements was supported by competent evidence and therefore cannot be overturned on appeal. With respect to plaintiff's cross appeal, we respectfully request that this court find that the defendants are entitled to a complete remedy for both of their causes of action, the breach of contract and the fraud, and that the, this court remand this issue to the trial court for entry of an immediate award of the compensatory and punitive damages that the trial court found were appropriate for that fraud. And I'll reserve five minutes for rebuttal on that issue. The MOU contract was not made of two articles. It was four. The defendants want to ignore the first one, which is the interim amendment to loan agreements, which was incorporated by reference into the MOU itself. And through that debt relief agreement, the defendants got lowered interest rates on their loans and a longer time to pay them. That was substantial relief that at the time of trial amounted to $77 million of debt that had not been repaid to plaintiffs. That continues to accrue every day. They're still benefiting from that term of the agreement. Article two called for the temporary reorganization of certain affiliated companies, the SACs, under an independent board, not the government, a board of seven people, that the defendants could nominate two of those board members, the plaintiffs would nominate three, and then together they would nominate two independent board, board members. And that board was bound through the operating agreement that was in article two of the MOU to act in the policyholder's best interest and also, to the extent that it wasn't in contravention of the policyholder's best interests, to maximize the long-term equity value of the SACs themselves. The benefit to the defendants is built right into the operating agreement set forth in Article 2 of the MOU. And with Article 3 severed, they still benefit from that. Article 3, as we've discussed, contained, among other things, an agreement to amend the existing loans. And loans is a defined term in the MOU, capital L loans. And that applies to loans, not with the third parties, but with the insurance lenders. And Article 4 contained other contract terms, including the representations and warranties from defendants, a broad severability provision, and an agreement that if the MOU were breached, specific performance would be the appropriate remedy. Do you agree that removing Article 3 is rewriting the contract? No. 
The parties included a broad severability provision. There was an acknowledgement between the parties that something in this agreement might not be enforceable. And what could that be? Article one was already being performed immediately. They benefited from the debt relief instantaneously. Article two is an operating agreement. That's a contract in and of itself. Article three is the part that really, if anyone was thinking about what might be an unenforceable and severed, that's the part that it would have been. And the contemplation of the parties, while it's not binding on this court that they included a severability provision, it's not determinative of the issue, it certainly is an indication that they were thinking about it at the time. And the court applied that severability clause. And now the defendants are saying that because it was the main purpose of the agreement to have that, then the entire contract fails. But of course, that's not the position that they were taking to the trial court, where they wrote things like, in their motion to dismiss, <clears throat> the global loan amendments provision, and that's Article 3, leaves open certain material terms of the loans and agreements. In their summary judgment motion, this indefinite and forward-looking language makes clear the preliminary state of the party's agreement. The MOU leaves virtually every material term of the global loan amendments, again, Article 3, for later determination. In their post-trial brief, virtually every material term contemplated in the global loan amendments was missing. There was no evidence in front of the trial court that this was the most important part of the agreement to the defendants because their position in front of the trial court was that no one knew what it meant. Now that they won that argument, they're taking the opposite position. And in their reply brief here, they write, without Article 3, the MOU is a deal that the defendants would never have accepted. It's an argument of convenience to say, on the one hand, we never knew what it meant, and on the other hand, to say, this was essential to us entering into this deal. Moreover, their argument that Article 3 was the main purpose of the MOU fails factually for three reasons. The first is that the main purpose of the MOU is to protect the policyholders. The second is that the protections for the defendants that they claim they need is already included in the MOU in the recitals and in Article 2, which binds how that board must manage these companies. And third, the loan amendments set forth in Article 3 weren't for the defendant's benefit anyway. The main purpose test that's out on green versus black asks us to determine what is the main purpose of an agreement. And if, if it's not in furtherance of that main purpose, it can be severed. And that might be hard in some cases, but it's not here. Because the MOU tells you right in, article, right in the beginning in recital N, that the purpose of it is to protect the policyholders. The secondary purpose, to the extent that they're not in tension with each other, is to maximize the value of those companies that the defendants will get back once plaintiff's loans are repaid. And so to the extent that the defendants are claiming that these benefits were for them and therefore that can't be taken away, well, the parties agreed what the purpose of this was, and it wasn't to give more benefits to the defendants. How do you respond to the argument that is made by a colleague that the global restructuring and the global loan amendments were be formed concurrently because they both have the same deadline? It looked, if you're just a plain reading, that they're supposed to operate in conjunction with each other. So what is your response to that argument? The, obviously, the parties agreed at the time that they were going to do both of these things. The, the way that the MOU expressed it was that the reorganization of the companies was to be done by September 30th, 2019, and the loan amendments were to be done by that same deadline or such later term as the parties may agree. And obviously, parties can always agree to amend a contract, 
But the fact that that language is specifically included with respect to one part of it and not the other, I think is an indication that the parties acknowledged that there might need to be some additional working on that. And that really what made sense would be for the, the reorganization to happen either right at the same time or first reorganization, then loan amendments. But either way, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that the essential part of this to the plaintiffs was to get that independent management over, the, over these companies so that the repayment of the plaintiffs could be facilitated to get that money back for the policyholders to start making them whole. And at the same time, the, uh, the defendants, Mr. Lindbergh, the, the plaintiff insurance company's owner, agreed that the companies would be placed into rehabilitation. That was part of this deal too, was that the plaintiffs were gonna be placed into rehabilitation and, and as a result, plaintiff's policyholders wouldn't be able to access their funds. And we're coming up on four years now of that, when the plaintiff's uh, policyholders don't know if or when they're going to get their money back. And so the, the main way that that was going to be facilitated was getting these loans repaid by having them under this board's control. The loan amendments um, that were set forth were for the benefit of the lenders, not for the defendants. Those terms included making sure that the loans were collateralized, having a personal guarantee from Mr. Lindbergh, having adequate insurance for those loans, providing regular financial reporting to the lenders, having reasonable affirmative and negative covenants in those loans. There, were, there was a provision for tax distributions, but those were for amounts legitimately due and owing. It limited what those tax distributions to Mr. Lindbergh could be. And there were default remedies that were set forth, but in green versus black, this court specifically found that default remedies are not the main purpose of a loan agreement. And so the defendants simply have failed to show that under the test set forth in Green versus Black, that the main purpose of the MOU fails as a result of Article Three being removed pursuant to the party's agreement that the contract does have severable provisions. Turning to the defendant's appeal with regard to the fraud binding, the false statements at issue here are the representations and warranties that are set forth in Article Four of the MOU that confirmed the accuracy of some representations um, that were made in conjunction with the MOU, but also that were about, in essence, we can perform the things we're supposed to perform under the MOU. And the defendants adopted those by signing the MOU agreement. The defendant's core challenge to this fraud aspect of the amended judgment and order is to judge Shirley's factual finding that plaintiff's reliance on these statements was reasonable. This court must affirm that finding because it's based on competent evidence that plaintiffs reasonably relied on the defendant's fraudulent statements. And that finding was made not only after over a week of trial, but after Judge Shirley had been ruling on this case for a couple of years, producing the not insubstantial record that I know is before this court now. And Judge Shirley had ample context and familiarity with the situation, which was complicated, when he was receiving this evidence at trial. Didn't the plaintiffs admit though in testimony that they didn't do the due diligence that would have been necessary for this multi-million billion dollar contract? Well, Your Honor, the plaintiffs didn't review every contract between the defendants, borrower entities, and third parties. I think that's not in dispute. But that's not the only evidence that was in front of the court at that time. There was evidence that the defendants had communications with the defendants about this. The plaintiffs and defendants talked about these, these, um, these third-party loans because the plaintiffs knew that they existed. And the defendants 
made representations that were consistent with the representations that were ultimately included in the MOU itself, that these, they could still perform that agreement, notwithstanding the existence of those other loans. And when looking at the defendant's cases about that they've cited to regarding what is reasonable reliance, they have argued that Walker versus Town of Stoneville is no longer good law because of Roundtree versus Chowan County. And there are very similar facts in those two cases. And there, but there were a couple of Supreme Court cases that came in between them. And in Roundtree, the Court of Appeals said, in light of these Supreme Court cases, we need more diligence to be done here in order to survive um, and create an issue of fact. But after that line of cases, in a Supreme Court case from 2021, and we submitted this in a supplemental memorandum of authority yesterday, in Cummings versus Carroll, there was a, a situation dealing with the sale of a house on Oak Island. And when the sellers were making that sale, they made a representation in writing to the buyers that they didn't know of any water issues with the house, essentially. And they knew that there were water issues with the house. So the buyers had an inspection done and it uncovered some roof issues, some ceiling issues, some rust was discovered, but they didn't do anything further. And the trial court said, as a matter of law, that's not enough to get past summary judgment. That's inadequate diligence. And the court of appeals reversed and said that it, that was an issue of fact. The Supreme Court, including Chief Justice Newby, who wrote the previous two Supreme Court opinions regarding what reasonable reliance was, joined the majority opinion on the point of that was enough to create an issue of fact. Because in the face of that affirmative representation in writing from the sellers that there were no water issues, even the fact that there may have been some evidence that maybe they should have done more, that was a core determination of reasonableness, which in this state is decided by a finder of fact. And here, likewise, Judge Shirley was, was um, able to evaluate the, this transaction in light of all of the evidence. And that included that these contracts were with hundreds of companies, that they were all in defendant's possession. And my colleague referenced the fact that the plaintiff insurance companies had been in supervision, which is true, but that didn't give them access to all of the agreements for the non-insurance companies, which is what we're talking about here. The plaintiffs obviously had access to their own loans and were familiar with those terms, but those weren't the issue. <clears throat> the court found as a, as a matter of fact that the loans that are at issue were in the defendant's possession and control. And there's no evidence that the defendants denied them access to it, but it's also a reality that, um, that they were familiar with them, that they understood them better, and the trial court made that finding as a matter of fact as well. We're not talking about something where it would be patently obvious that there's a septic tank, that there's a roof issue. This was a complex analysis of the specific change in control provisions of these voluminous other documents and how they would interact with the MOU, um, which itself was a little complicated because it created a holding company that was a subsidiary of the existing parent company. Does that consist of a change in control? You know, that, that was something that wouldn't be um, obvious for the plaintiffs. They would not be the best possible people to, to judge that. And so what did they do? They got a representation from the defendants that it wouldn't be 
um, that it wouldn't be a problem. And the trial court didn't find that the defendants were mistaken. He found that they knew it was not true when they made it. That was the fraud determination. And that was what the trial court found at the end of hearing all of the evidence and having the opportunity to evaluate the credibility of all the witnesses. And the question of what's reasonable also depends on the circumstances of the transaction. And here there are a few things that are, that are relevant. This wasn't a purchase of these companies. The insurance companies weren't buying these companies. They weren't gonna be stuck with them forever. So the appropriate level of diligence may be a little different in a transaction here where we're putting them under the temporary independent control of another board, not taking them on to make them the plaintiff's problem forever. Second, this wasn't a situation where if the plaintiffs looked into this and didn't want to buy these companies, they could just walk away. They were already stuck with these borrowers. They had these existing loan relationships with them. All that the plaintiffs could do would be to not give them more money, which is what they did in reliance on these representations and warranties. They extended them the $40 million under the revolver. They extended them what amounted to $77 million of debt relief at the time of trial. And the fact that the defendants lied to get those benefits, which is what's found as a matter of fact in Judge Shirley's amended judgment and order, that's what his finding was, is why those are the proper measure of damages for defendants' fraud. And what, what ultimately happens if these, in, if these insurance companies are liquidated? If the insurance companies are liquidated, which now all three of the insurance companies who have policyholders have been ordered into liquidation, the defendants are appealing the first two. The second was just ordered last week. Um, but if they're placed into, when they're placed into liquidation, when that becomes effective, there are state guarantee associations that operate a little bit like the FDIC, and they will pay the policyholders of their state. It's a state-by-state -state issue um, up to a maximum on their policy, and the limits of that maximum depend on what type of policy and what state those policyholders are in. But with respect to the excess policyholders, which is people who have policies that go over what those state guarantee limits are. When you, when you say policies, do you mean annuities and prepaid burial contracts? Yes, Your Honor, it's mostly annuities. Um, there are some other policies, types of policies as well, but the vast majority that we're talking about are annuities. And for policyholders that hold those policies that go above their state guarantee limits, when the companies are liquidated, they will not get the benefit of those policies. They will be wiped out. And we're talking about thousands of policyholders with $250 million worth of excess policies. It's an enormous amount of money. And so the getting this money back into the insurance companies to be able to pay them is obviously of great significance. And the fact that this debt relief existed is just money that otherwise would have been in the plaintiff's coffers that is not in furtherance of this deal that then the defendants didn't perform their side of. And from the, from the plaintiff's perspective, no one from the defendants should have not wanted to perform. There was no indication that they weren't going to do that. If one of those operating company entities had a loan agreement that was going to be defaulted on by being put under the NHC, the defendants were going to be the ones who lost that company if that third-party lender defaulted on them and liquidated that company. So from the plaintiff's perspective, and the trial court had a full view of all of this and was able to assess it for himself, as a matter of fact, his finding was that their reliance was reasonable. And that, that finding was supported by competent evidence and therefore cannot be overturned.
I'd like to turn to plaintiff's cross appeal. Judge Shirley's uh, amended judgment and order also found that the plaintiffs were injured by the defendant's fraud in the amount of $117 million. And he found by clear and convincing evidence that plaintiffs are entitled to three times that amount as punitive damages. He erred only as a matter of law in failing to make that award immediately. Plaintiffs are entitled to complete relief for both of their claims, the breach of contract and the fraud, which includes an immediate award of compensatory and punitive damages that the trial court found were proven. The decision not to award those fraud damages immediately was an error for three reasons. First, the plaintiffs are entitled to a complete remedy, which includes relief for both claims. Second, those remedies are not duplicative or a windfall to plaintiffs. And third, the remedies are consistent with each other. Why, why wouldn't specific performance make you whole? In this case, the, the remedy for the breach of contract was specific performance. The remedy for the fraud was that the to get back the money that the plaintiffs had extended to the defendants in the form of the revolver loan and the ILA relief in reliance on the representations and warranties, which were knowingly falsely made. That they extended under Article 2? That they extended uh, in the separate IALA and revolver. So three different agreements, three separately enforceable, although obviously interrelated and part of the same transaction, but that's not uncommon. Um, they, they were still three separately enforceable agreements. And so for that reason, getting the money back for the revolver, getting damages for the benefits that were extended under the ILA, it's not undoing the consideration that the defendants received under the MOU because they still are going to receive the substantial benefits they're going to get under the MOU, including the protection of the long-term equity value of the SACs and all of their board participation rights under the MOU. In addition, the trial court found what damages would have been if he had awarded damages for the, for the breach of contract rather than specific performance. And it's different. The damages for the breach of contract would have been the value of each one of those companies that was supposed to be moved as a subsidiary of the new holding company board. Each one of those companies that didn't get moved, the dollar value of that company that would be plaintiff's contract damages. That's the breach of contract damages. Didn't you specifically include in the contract that the remedy for breach of contract was specific performance? Exactly. And we asked for that and we received it. But just highlighting how the damages for fraud are completely different from what they would have been for the, for the breach of contract if that were what was awarded. It illustrates that the plaintiffs aren't double recovering for their breach of contract. They aren't receiving both an equitable and a damages award for the breach of contract. Instead, what the trial court found as a factual matter was that the plaintiffs would never have given the defendants the, that loan and that additional debt relief were it not for those representations and warranties in the contract. And that's what plaintiff's CEO who signed the MOU testified to. The trial court found that that was reasonable and he made that as a factual finding. There was no need for the plaintiffs to make an election across their two separate claims. And the rationale of Ostriker, the Supreme Court decision, which dealt with the issue of fraud and breach of contract. And that case was a little bit different because it involved uh, an award of damages that arose from the contract itself, whereas here we're talking about two separate contracts. But the rationale of the Supreme Court there is incredibly instructive here. And that is that when you have a breach of contract and you have fraud, it's not enough for a claimant to just get the contract remedy. 
because otherwise, a defendant only has to do what he was supposed to do in the first place. And if you don't include additional damages, then there's no punishment, there's no consequence for lying in the context of business transactions. And of course, the strong policy of this state is to deter such conduct and to encourage truthfulness and fair dealing when we're talking about contracts as well. Your Honor, I see that my time is up. I'll reserve my final five minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. I wanted to address Judge, uh, Judge Flood's questions about the ILA. Um, yes, the ILA is in place and the parties have been performing under it. The ILA uh, does several things. It, it kind of pools the resources and requires two curtailment payments of hundreds of millions of dollars, the first of which is due at the end of this year, the second of which is due in a few years from now. That's a huge benefit to the plaintiffs. They get these uh, payments in the, in the uh, total of hundreds of millions of dollars, and the contract purports that those payments come from all of the operating companies, not just one here and one there, that they all collectively have that obligation. And they've been receiving quarterly payments all along. So the plaintiffs kind of say without citation that the policyholders are waiting for these loans to be paid back. But to be clear, hundreds of millions of dollars have been paid uh, in principal and interest to these insurance companies and others since this contract was signed. Is that also a benefit to defendants? To make those payments? Not directly. Um, I mean, of course, the, the defendants have paid when they've been able uh, towards those loans. And the other thing that the, that discussion misses is that, as I mentioned earlier, there are, I believe, over two dozen lawsuits dealing with these uh, the interim loan amendment contract that have been brought by the plaintiffs, and those are currently being litigated. Same with the revolver. The revolver uh, document has already ended in a judgment. So the idea that the plaintiffs could kind of spring fraud damages based on documents that are being separately litigated where there's already a judgment that we uh, that my clients owe it back it's hard to see how that would not be a double recovery to have those damages awarded here um the my colleague made reference to the the rule in green um and that's the the kind of severance rule um that's a case where there's a, a promissory note and there are certain terms that were, uh, that were found to be unenforceable and were stricken. But again, that, that's a case where uh, the borrower was better off as a result of uh, that being stricken. Here, we have the opposite situation. I mean, NHC, this new holding company, the government, will control these companies upon contribution under Article 2. And without the protections of Article 3, the government can impose uh, any range of terms on those with no protections for the defendants to preserve that long-term equity value. And to that point, uh, there should be no dispute if, uh, as to who controls the board, who would control these companies. I believe Ms. Poe made a reference to the idea that there would be independent directors, but just to clarify for the record, on record page 108, article 2.3.i, the independent directors are selected by a majority vote of the non-independent directors and the majority is held by the Department of Insurance. So the majority control of the board, kind of by logic, is going to be uh, by the Department of Insurance. The government will be running these companies. 
Uh, Ms. Poe suggested that our position is that the insurance companies end up with no remedy. And I want to be clear, that is not our position. We have not said that there's no remedy here. When a contract is unenforceable and as a whole, the law provides the remedy. It's, rest, it's restitution as appropriate. It, it's unwinding the contract, trying to put the parties back in the positions they were when that agreement was signed. That is what the law provides. That is the remedy that the law provides. So we are not saying, you know, there's no remedy here. There is. The law says exactly what happens when a contract is found unenforceable as a whole like that. Including repayment of the benefits that your clients already received? Yeah, the trial court will have to figure out. I mean, that, again, there's, it seems complicated as to whether the ILA is a separate enforceable contract. I mean, we say that it is, the plaintiffs say that it is. I don't know what position they'll take on remand as to exactly what happens with that. But absolutely, that kind of mess is exactly what the trial court has to do, is to use the equitable remedy of restitution to figure out how to unwind, whether it's this particular contract, whether you know the revolver is part of it, whether the ILA is part of it. Those are things that are better determined by the trial court in the first instance. There was more discussion about reasonable reliance. And I want to be clear. Chief Justice Newby already said what he thinks about this in bumpers. And this is kind of a classic Chapter 75 case from, I guess it's now about 10 years old, showing that I'm getting old. Um, bumpers versus Community Bank, it's 2013. Chief Justice Newby says this, reliance is not reasonable where the plaintiff could have discovered the truth of the matter through reasonable diligence, but failed to investigate. So we don't have to guess what this recent case, Cummings versus Carroll, what it might mean when a party has some investigation. We know what that is. When a party has some investigation, that's a fact issue. Was it enough? Was it not enough? Classic fact issue. When there's zero diligence, and this is a question Judge Wood was asking, when there is zero diligence, and Ms. Poe didn't deny it, zero diligence, the law says that's not a fact issue. That's what Bumper says. Chief Justice Newby says when there's no investigation, there's no fact issue for a jury to decide. Uh, it should really never go to the fact finder. And that's why in our briefs, we cite case after case where summary judgment is awarded on exactly this point, where there's no investigation, the plaintiff has no fraud claim, period. That's the law in North Carolina, uh, black letter law at this point. Ms. Post said that, the, um, that they did not have access to the third party documents. I believe she said that they had access to the insurance company's books, but not the books and records or loan documents of the underlying operating companies. That is contradicted by the record, and I wanted to point that out. Uh, trial transcript page 186, uh, and I'll just direct the court to it. That is where the plaintiffs admitted that indeed they had access not just to the insurance company books, but because of the the way the administrative supervision order was written, they had access to all of these books and records. So they absolutely had access to the loan documents. The loan agreements relating to the SACs and, yes. to, the, and to third party. Uh... They had access to everything we did. Okay. I think that a, another way of looking at these representations that's helpful is that the plaintiffs say, look, we, we just wanted to not have to do diligence, right? We wanted to sit, put a representation in there that just said what we hoped the truth was and just leave it at that without having to do diligence. And the truth is the, the law provides for exactly that. 
There is a mechanism in the law for that. It's warranties, right? You don't have to prove reliance for warranties. But the way that you act on a warranty is you sue for breach of contract or breach of warranty. That's a contract claim. And the remedy for breach of warranty is enforcement of the contract. That is a breach of contract claim, not a fraud claim. So I think where the plaintiffs are, are kind of mixing up the law here is to try and get a fraud claim and fraud damages on the basis of no due diligence, but that's a warranty case. They didn't bring a warranty case. They brought just a breach of contract case. So I think that kind of resolves the conundrum there. There's some discussion about what would happen with the rehab or the liquidations. I just wanted to be clear, those are separate. It's a separate lawsuit. I mean, Judge Shirley is presiding over those actions, the kind of rehabilitation or liquidation action, but it's separate. I mean, this is a contract action and that action, Judge Shirley has you know, a range of options that are available under uh, Chapter 58, Article 30, uh, available to him for how to deal with the rehabilitation and liquidation. I'd like to pivot to the cross appeal uh, that the plaintiffs have. Uh, one is that I believe Ms. Poe made reference to the idea that the court already found damages and just hasn't awarded them. But that is not the case. On record page 705 in the amended judgment, footnote six, Judge Shirley makes clear that the court is not awarding damages. The court said that uh, we did not go that far and said that he was not going to award compensatory damages. I believe uh, Ms. Pope made reference to the idea that the breach of contract damages would have been the dollar value of the underlying uh, sacks of the operating companies. But to be clear, I think that that's really a, an important misunderstanding. The government never uh, was never intended to own these companies forever. The whole structure of the agreement was that the government would take charge of the life's work of defendants for a period of time in order to pay off these loans. But when those loans are paid off, make no mistake, these companies are supposed to go back to their original owner and they're supposed to be in good shape. That's why the MOU expressly says in the purpose clause in recital N that one of the two purposes is to preserve the long-term equity value of these companies. Uh, lastly, on this point, Ms. Poe made reference to the idea that if they don't get damages, that there's no punishment. But the law is clear that fraud damages are, are not punishment. Contract damages are not punishment. Punishment, that's punitive damages. So on the fraud point, and the fraud damages would be, again, not to punish. The fraud damages are uh, a, a plaintiff would have an option, right? A plaintiff could say, you induced me fraudulently, but I'd like the benefit of my bargain and move forward and have the contract enforced. Or they could try and have it unwound. That's the remedy for fraud, not punishment. And on punishment, we know what Judge Shirley thinks about punitive damages because in his discretion, he decided not to award them. So that's the easiest issue on appeal. It's, it's the one issue that's subject to abuse of discretion standard. And there's really no action. Uh, you know, that, that one's not as vexing as the others. Judge Shirley, we, we would contend, has that discretion, exercised it, and decided not to award punitive damages. I want to be responsive to any of the court's questions and, and use the rest of my time for that if there's any lingering concerns. I do not. We have no further questions. Great. So... At the end of the day, then, we would ask that uh, the judgment 
be affirmed in part, but be uh, vacated as to the idea as to whether this one piece of the contract, Article 3, a pillar of the contract, was properly severed or whether it doomed the whole thing. It did doom the whole thing, and we asked that the court remand, send it back to Judge Shirley to try and put the parties back in the position they were when they entered the document. Thank you so much. Thank you. With respect to the trial court's findings on the issue of fraud, I want to direct the court to record page 679, where the court addressed who had access to these third-party agreements. And in paragraph 55 of the judgment and order, defendants maintained total access and control over the underlying loan agreements and seller notes, equity equivalence agreements, and third-party financing agreements during the due diligence process. Paragraph 56, plaintiffs did not possess the majority of the underlying loan agreements between and among the second and third tier operating companies and holding companies, and on the other hand, seller notes, EEAs, and other third-party financing agreements. To the extent the defendants are pointing to other record evidence that supported the idea that the plaintiffs did have access to these agreements, the trial court rejected those as a matter of fact and found that the plaintiffs did not have access to those agreements. Your Honor, we are here because in 2019, Mr. Lindbergh had loaned himself over a billion dollars of plaintiff's policyholder money, and he couldn't pay it back. We're, my colleague has referred a number of times to the separate breach of contract cases involving the revolver and the interim amendment to loan agreements. I would respectfully suggest those aren't before the court today, but since they've been brought up several times, those are breach of contract cases. And those are, have defendants that are not any of the parties before the court in this case. The defendants lied to get the money from the revolver and the IALA loan debt relief. Those other defendants separately at separate times breached their agreements with plaintiffs. And the plaintiffs are collecting separate damages for those breaches of contract. And notably, they're measured differently. For instance, in the IALA, that $77 million consisted of the difference between what the plaintiffs would have been entitled to under the interest rates of the original loan agreements versus the lowered rates under the IALA. In the, in the breach of contract cases, the plaintiffs are suing separate defendants, the actual borrowers on those agreements, for their non-payment under the terms of the loans. And the damages there are measured by the acceleration of all the future amounts that are due under those loans into the present. Completely different calculation of damages for a breach that occurred at a different time, relief from separate parties. There is no overlap or no double recovery to the plaintiffs on those issues either, even if they were before this court. It's not good enough to the plaintiffs to just unwind the deal. As I've just referred to, the defendants, those companies have breached their, their contract obligations too. And the parties agreed here that what should happen if the MOU was breached was that the plaintiffs were entitled to specific performance of that agreement. And Judge Shirley found correctly that the Article 3 of the MOU could be severed and the rest of the agreement enforced. And the plaintiffs agree that all of that can still be done for the purpose of the MOU, which is the protection of plaintiff's policyholders. With respect to the award of damages being contingent, 
the way that we would read that is that Judge Shirley made an error of law in whether he could award those fraud damages based on his separate award of the specific performance remedy for the breach of contract. That's the error that, that occurred here it was an error of law and his misapprehension about that. Once that's corrected, there's no further findings of fact that Judge Shirley needs to make because he already found how those damages should be measured for fraud and how much punitive damages would be appropriate. And that's three times those. And all of those findings were made in conformity with Chapter 1D of the general statutes, and he properly uh, awarded those, those, found the measurement of those, and only needs to award them to complete and cure the error in his findings. Your Honor, the trial court properly found that the defendants both breached the MOU and directed that the, the defendants should specifically perform, and found that the defendants had defrauded the plaintiffs, and found what amount of compensatory and punitive damages were appropriate. The error was only in not awarding those damages immediately. Because the defendants breached their promises to the plaintiffs, these companies have been ordered into liquidation in one of the five largest insurance company failures in American history. Every day that this case remains pending is another day that those innocent policyholders don't know if or when they'll see their investments again. And the defendants have referred to Mr. Lindbergh's life work. Well, they, this is those innocent people's life work. Mr. Lindbergh's life work has resulted in two federal criminal indictments on which two people have already pleaded guilty. It's time to put an end to Mr. Lindbergh's frivolous attempts to escape his obligations. And we respectfully request that the trial court affirm Judge Shirley's order in all respects, except for his award of fraud damages. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes oral argument in this matter. Uh, and we'll take it under advisement. I wanna thank you all for your excellent arguments this afternoon. Uh, Mr. Ray, we may adjourn.